Let's pray as we uh, begin, shall we? Father, I thank you for the truth of some of those words that we have just sung, that you are the Lion of Judah. You are the one who is mighty and powerful. And you are also the Lamb who was slain, who emptied himself out, who gave his life for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you are fighting, perhaps not on our behalf, but Lord, you are fighting your battles in this world. We thank you that ultimately you are the Lord. And I pray that as I speak now, Lord, that words that are from you will really take hold in our lives and anything that is not of you will simply fall away. Lord, as we come uh, to this passage this morning, we we acknowledge that it has its challenges and difficulties. And so we tread with humility, but Lord, with an eagerness in our hearts to know what you would say to us. So I pray that you will speak to us this morning, that we will have ears that are eager to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen. Amen. One of the things that often fascinates uh, and somewhat intrigues me is, is the way that at the end of a story, so many threads often seem to draw together and suddenly things fall into place uh, and, and make sense of things that have gone before. Perhaps that partly explains, I'm not a great reader of crime fiction, um, but perhaps that explains why it's so popular these days. It's the, the mystery is finally revealed at the end of the story. Um, for those of you who are different bent, and I apologize if this means nothing to you, but uh, those of you who are great cinema going, goers uh, may have followed the Marvel uh, cinematic series. Uh, and one of the things that intrigued me about it was that it was over some 22 films over 11 years, we saw characters develop and all these storylines come together. And right at the end, I, I, did, I haven't counted them. I'm not that sort of follower of Marvel comics. But someone I know counted over 100 references in the final film, including little excerpts from them that suddenly made sense of seemingly unimportant things that had gone before. So why do I start there? What's the point of that? Well, I think that helps us a little bit get our head around uh, what's going on in 2 Thessalonians. Paul is talking about things that are going to happen at the end of the age. And so perhaps an obvious question is, why doesn't he just say to them, well, don't bother about that. Don't worry about the details of that. That's not really important. Just focus on you know, building your faith and following Jesus. But no, he actually goes into quite a lot of detail here. He did in his first letter to the Thessalonians. We tease out from this. He clearly spent quite a lot of time teaching them about these things uh, when he was with them. So why does he do that? Because understanding the end of the story helps them make sense of their present predicament. 
When Andrew introduced the series a couple of weeks ago, he talked about the fact that they were here in this very cosmopolitan city at the intersection of many trade routes, uh, but they were suffering persecution. And they were asking the question, why? If Jesus has come to set all things right, why are we in this uh, situation? And so Paul's trying to help them understand the bigger picture and the wider context. And part of that, and, and perhaps the most important thing about looking at the end times, we tend perhaps to uh, run a little bit scared of that because they are complex to understand. We can't make sense of them. In fact, when we do think we begin to understand, we find it's, oh, you know, it's a bit like that. Or we know people who get so bogged down in trying to draw charts and timelines and all these things that we think, Whoa. But the key point is, Paul wants them to see Jesus. He wants them to see who Jesus is. It's about the centrality of Jesus and his ultimate power. It's one of our core values, isn't it? The centrality of Christ. But here's a question. Do we focus very much on Christ was born in a stable at Bethlehem? He grew up. He ministered. He went to the cross. He died on a cross at Calvary. And yes, he was raised again three days later and then ascended to his father. End of story. Perhaps we don't put it quite like that, but I think that often informs our thinking. But the story of Jesus Christ is much bigger than that. It started before creation. He is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. And it goes on, and it continues into the end of the age and beyond. So three key points this morning. The end of the story is really, really important. Secondly, it all centers on Jesus. The beginning, the middle, and the end. And thirdly, he is sovereign. He is infinitely more powerful, infinitely greater than any, certainly than anybody, but than anything else. So let's have a look at um, this text in 2 Thessalonians. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 1189. You may find it helpful just to turn that up. And we're reading uh, chapter 2. I'll read down uh, to verse 12. So Paul writes this, to the church in Thessalonica, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching uh, allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember That when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. 
For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So what's all that about, you might say? Well, let's just quickly uh, run through and then unpack a few things um, that we have time for this morning. So Paul is talking about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We all believe that Jesus will return, don't we? That he will come again. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Do we live our lives as though that is true? Paul is talking about that and our being gathered to him. He's talking about the end of the age. But the Thessalonians have been unsettled by some false teachings, some false teachings, uh, allegedly from Paul. Uh, we don't know the details of this, whether it was a letter, whether someone had prophesied someone in the church, in, it's prophesied something in the church or to the church, or whether uh, someone had claimed that Paul had taught this when he came. But in the first letter, they were worried that Jesus hadn't come. So what about all those who'd already died? How were they going to be gathered to him? Now in the second letter, they're worried that maybe Jesus has come and they've missed it. Let me assure you, as Paul assures them, we will not miss it when Jesus returns. We know that every eye will see him and every knee will bow before him. So Paul says, don't be disturbed or shaken by wrong teachings about the end of the age. And I think that's a good lesson for us today as well. And then he goes on to talk about these things actually aren't going to happen until a number of things have taken place. And he, he, he lays out a number of events. What are they? Well, the first one is there is going to be rebellion. What does that mean? We'll come to that in a moment. There's going to be rebellion. Then there's this strange thing about this character called the man of lawlessness. It's possible translation of that might also be the son of destruction. This character exalts himself. He lifts himself up and he demands to be worshipped. He exalts himself above any God or any religious system and he demands that he be worshipped. He takes his seat in the temple of God, it says. He sets himself up in God's temple. He is fully revealed and Jesus 
returns. And we'll get to that bit in a moment. So some questions. What is uh, this rebellion that he talks about? The rebellion is associated with the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness, a character who ferments a rebellion. A rebellion against God. Against the values that God would have us live our lives by. The man of lawlessness is someone who stands outside the law. Literally, he's lawlessness. He stands outside the law. The law ultimately comes from God. So the man of lawlessness is opposed to everything that is of God. And ultimately, that means he demands to be worshipped as God. Some commentators, actually quite a number of commentators, identify the man of lawlessness with uh, the Antichrist that we read of in other uh, parts of the New Testament. And so the question is, who is he? Well, it's a hotly debated topic. Um, Throughout history, uh, various commentators, uh, pundits have suggested various characters, one or another, and they're still at it today. You know, some might see it in Vladimir Putin, some saw it in saw him in Donald Trump. But the point uh, is that Paul is actually talking about the times when Jesus will return. And as far as I'm aware, Jesus has not yet returned. For the Thessalonians, Paul probably had in mind uh, uh, the emperor of the time, the emperor Augustus. Um, The city of Thessalonica uh, enjoyed a lot of favor under the Roman Empire. It was a free city. They set their own laws. But the emperor Augustus had visited There were temples to the Emperor Augustus. The Emperor Augustus had set himself up as God to be worshipped. That was one of the reasons the Christians there were being persecuted. So there's probably an identification with Augustus. But the point is that, and this so often happens in prophecy in the Bible, which is why we get in a muddle about it, is that things tend to go in cycles until history is finally resolved. It's not, it's not infinitely cyclical. But there is that sense in which various people have appeared on the world stage as almost like precursors to the final man of lawlessness who will come at the end of the age. And Paul says there is this spirit of lawlessness. There is a secret power in verse 7 of lawlessness that is already at work. It's going on throughout history. As Sim said at the beginning, you know, the world might appear to be in complete chaos. We might look at some of the things that are going on and say, how can that be happening? What on earth is going on here? We see the spirit of lawlessness at work. And that continues until the end of time or to the end of the age. But I would suggest that actually the intensity of it 
will increase as the end approaches. So, so for those in the, the Christians in Thessalonica, they would perhaps have had this image of Augustus. For us, we may see evil personified or working through particular individuals on the world stage. We saw that Augustus raised himself up as God. Well, that doesn't happen today, you might think. Well, look at North Korea as one example. And there are others. Men raise themselves up as God. These things will continue. But says Paul, this work currently is restrained. The secret power of lawlessness is at work, but the one who hold, and will, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. So that's the second thing we grapple with. What is this secret power uh, of lawlessness? Or what it rather is this one that holds it back? And the text is a bit ambivalent here as to whether the, the thing that holds it back is a who or a what. Some of the pronouns are impersonal, some are personal. Uh, and again, there's been much speculation uh, and scholarly study as to what this might be. Some suggest it's the Holy Spirit or the church, or the preaching of the gospel. But these don't really fit or make sense. How are they going to be taken away before Christ returns and gathers the believers to him? Some suggest it's earthly governments. It's the rule of law in society. It's a widely held view of what this means. More plausible but I suggest that's not how the Thessalonians would have read it. If they, if, if they identify the rule of law with the emperor who's just exalted himself as God and is a foreshadowing of the man of lawlessness, it's not likely to be that. But there is an alternate reading, which doesn't get into many translations. I'm not sure if it gets into any of the major translations. But a number of scholars think that this uh, might not be this is not a really good translation and that really what Paul is is saying here is there is a secret power at work but it's not restraining but has seized the man of lawlessness it's almost like a demonic possession evil has come and seized and is working through an individual and at one point and at some time that will be taken out of the way or possibly again a better translation is steps out of the way. It's like they, something steps out of the way and then this evil is revealed in its fullness. But that is the moment when Jesus appears. The lawless one will be revealed when that restraining spirit is taken out of the way. But he will be overthrown by Jesus. Jesus will appear, he will return, he will overthrow and destroy the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth and um, with the splendor of his coming. And it's an uncomfortable picture because it's actually, the, the, the language is in the Greek is actually quite violent. 
This is not Jesus gently putting that to one side. This man will be completely over. It'll be a violent overthrow. He will be completely stripped of his power. There's an allusion here uh, to Isaiah uh, chapter 11 and other places. So Jesus is ultimately triumphant when he returns. There will be these cycles of lawlessness increasing, like a, almost like a spiral as it goes out, increases until he is finally revealed in uh, his full evil, if you like. And that is the moment when Jesus will return. And we read at the end, he will, he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders. Where do we hear that again? Jesus, the, the apostles uh, demonstrated the power of Jesus in signs and wonders. There will be a counterfeit parallel here. That was true of some of the cults in the time of Paul. And there were miracles, signs and wonders ascribed to some of the emperor cults in Rome. And people will be deceived as they were by these things, says Paul. And he says to the Thessalonians, do not be deceived by these things. We'll think more next week as we look at the second half of this chapter uh, about deception and standing firm in the truth. We will come back to that. But that is what's happening here. Jesus is triumphant. So, That's a a sort of 50,000 foot view of what might have been going on in the Thessalonians' heads. What does it mean for us today? And I want to touch on those three key points we mentioned earlier. The end of the story is extremely important. It throws everything else into relief. And I think we need to know it better. Jesus thought it was important. He spoke about it. He warned the disciples about it. Paul thought it was important. He taught the Thessalonians and warned them about it. Through the Bible, God has revealed quite a lot about it. It's often hard to make sense of it all. It is. Let's acknowledge that. But I think it's important. I think we need to grasp it. Uh, And so if anything this morning, I just want to encourage us to press into these things, to talk about these things, to debate these things with one another, to really try and understand what it means and what it means for us today. Yes, it might be talking about the end times, but we can't just put it off. Jesus may return very soon, and we may be getting close. He may not, but it still has a lot to say to us because it all centers on Jesus Jesus is at the beginning of the story, he's in the middle of the story, he's at the end of the story. Let's not just focus on the middle, let's focus on the whole story. The centrality of Christ. Some of you may remember, as I do, Ian Thompson stood here um, probably a couple of years ago now, maybe three years ago. Yeah, it's probably before lockdown, three years ago, and preached on the centrality of Christ. Keep the main thing the main thing. Jesus is Lord. Jesus should be at the center of our lives. And as he's at the beginning, he's our creator, 
and our sustainer. We talk a lot, and we'll be celebrating that in a moment, the middle of the story. He is our savior and our redeemer. There is a high point at the cross. But let's not leave the story there. He is going to return as the judge of all things and the restorer of all things. The reality of rejecting him is awful to consider. And we should only speak about it with heavy hearts. And yet Paul talks about it here. He talks about it in verse uh, 12. All will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. All those who are deceived by the spirit, by the man of lawlessness. Let us not be deceived. He talked about it in chapter 1. Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's a terrible and awful thing. It is serious. But it's not written to scare us. We don't use it to scare one another, to scare people. But it's written as a warning. Why would we choose that path when Jesus offers us so much more? And just one other thing on judgment. Um, it's just a, a occurred to me uh, recently. I was reading something somewhere, I think, that says, you know, we talk a lot in the Western world about justice. We all want justice. We are called to fight for justice. But I think we've fallen into a trap of wanting justice without judgment. And the two are inseparable. God judges not because he's mean and nasty, but because he is a God of justice and righteousness. And his victory is not some, yay, hey, victory. It's, it's a victory of goodness over evil. It's a victory that brings in justice. So it all centers on Jesus. And thirdly, he really is sovereign. His very appearance causes the man of lawlessness to be overthrown. Jesus has not yet finished his work on earth. He will return to rule physically. And one last point here as we draw to a close. The mistake that many of the Jewish people made when Jesus came was to think he was coming to set up some earthly kingdom. And he was coming to bring in the kingdom of God. And we've grasped that, haven't we? It's about the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom not of this world. But I suggest we've over-spiritualized it. Because if you read the Bible texts carefully from beginning to end, there is a real physical creation coming. It will be God's kingdom and Jesus will be king over a physical domain. A new earth and a new heaven. And because he is sovereign, if we can get this much greater vision of who he is, my prayer is it will lead us to deeper and fuller and greater worship. In the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ is given to John. John was the apostle whom Jesus loved. John was the apostle who reclined on Jesus at the Last Supper. 
And John was the one who got this incredible vision of Jesus in his resurrection, resurrection glory, his full resurrection glory as creator, sustainer, savior, redeemer, judge, and restorer. So may the greater vision of Jesus fill our minds and drive us to worship of him as he truly deserves. Amen.